right. Hello. Good evening. Once again, Fathom Academy uh, Christian Theology course. This is, uh, goodness, week six. I uh, can't believe it. We are at the midway point of this course. I uh, hope you're enjoying your summer. Hope this has been uh, encouraging to you and deepening uh, as you learn about who God is and what he is like. Uh, tonight, Ryan is going to get into uh, the doctrine of uh, the human being, uh, really starting to to move out of uh, who God is and, and and start to ask, what what is his creation, uh, specifically the pinnacle of his creation, human beings, image bearers. Uh, what, what, what's, what's going on beneath the surface for us? This is, uh, this is all really important to take in, in, in course. Uh, absolutely. We, we study God first because he is first and he goes first and he is before all things as Paul writes in, in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, and, and therefore we follow suit and begin to look at ourselves after we have first studied who God is. So, uh, I I'm, I'm excited, uh, legitimate. I'm, you know, that we're pre-recording all these. So I'm going to be sitting in the back of the room, listening to this and then uh, watching it later with y'all, but I'm, I'm excited to dig into this doctrine with you tonight. So let's just spend uh, a couple minutes praying and then we will get Ryan up here. Uh, father, once again, we, we bless you. We honor you. We uh, delight in you. Thank you for uh, the the common means of grace that we get to experience uh, each week, and the the common grace that you give us through technology and screens and microphones and the ability to do this uh, virtually this summer. Thank you for that. Uh, tonight, as as we uh, learn about uh, the doctrine of humans, the human beings, uh, Lord, your creation. Lord, I pray that uh, that Ryan would communicate clearly and that we would have hearts that are receptive, uh, minds that are are, are uh, attentive, and, and Lord, ultimately that you would use all of these things to deepen our love for you, uh, for for. Uh, our, our world and, and Lord, ultimately that we would um, bless you with this time. So thank you once again. We, we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, welcome back everyone to week six and thanks Chris for that introduction. And uh, what you said, it was really important and really right, which is surprising because you're not usually right about stuff, but uh, the idea that we study God first and then we study a human being in relationship to God, that order really matters because if we study a human being and then try to extrapolate to God, we end up with big problems. We end up with a God made in our own image rather than vice versa. So as Chris said, it's really important that we study God first. And that's where we've been spending, well, the first five weeks of this course. We looked at God as Trinity. We looked at the attributes of God. We looked at Christology we looked at pneumatology of the person of the Holy Spirit last week. And this week we are having a look at uh, what is a human being, all right? Uh, and uh, there's lots of confusion in our culture about this at the moment. Uh, this becomes increasingly important as there are all kinds of uh, really loaded ethical questions that we need to face as uh, people living in an our in American culture where there's lots of questions about uh, when does life begin and uh, and questions about human sexuality and what is a person. I won't deal with all those issues uh, in any sort of detail, but I hope that uh, by the end of our talk today, we'll at least have a better sense of the way that a human, uh, human being appears in the Bible and in the history of Christian doctrine. And will give us some tools for thinking about kind of thorny and difficult questions about uh, human nature and human behavior. Uh, and we're going to talk mostly about uh, human beings in their ideal state uh, this week. And we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin 
in our next talk together. So we won't be talking much about sin, but of course we can't talk about human beings without talking about sin. So we're going to talk about those in tandem over two talks. So we're looking at now at the, uh, what's called theological anthropology. Now I want to start with a little thought exercise. So I wonder if you take a minute to think about this at home. If you were to go down, uh, say if you're in Denver, you would go down to the Auraria campus where there's a few universities or you go to the university of Denver and you were to ask the average student there, what is a human being? What's a human being? I wonder what kind of answers you would get. Um, I can tell you, I don't think that they would make much sense, right? Because uh, you might get a, a typical answer that a human being is just sort of an advanced or evolved animal, right? We're no, really no different than other animals. And yet uh, we somehow uh, think that we still should be at the center of existence. Uh, I think you might get to varying degrees uh, something like this. This is from Stephen Hawking. Uh, the very famous scientist, you'll, you'll all know Stephen Hawking. He wrote a book called Reality on the Rocks in 1995. Uh, and I've given you a quote here on your handout uh, from Hawking. And listen to what he says. He says, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of uh, one among 100 billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. That's pretty harsh, right? Calling a human being chemical scum on a very moderate sized planet. But this view is fairly commonplace, particularly in sort of science communities. Uh, and it, you, you'd likely run into some version of this view on most college campuses that uh, human beings are just sort of a random collocation of atoms that happen to have evolved into the right order. And now, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to find our place in the universe, but here's the thing. Isn't it sort of strange that we're the only kind of animals that think about where uh, we are in the universe and think about the nature of our own existence. Now this is an extreme example, which in some ways is very easy to tear down, but I only uh, introduce it uh, to draw a very stark contrast. Uh, between this sort of view and the way that the Hebrew and Christian scriptures think about what a human person is. Uh, and so that's the task of theological anthropology, which is what we're doing this evening. Now, uh, in terms of etymology, the word comes from the Greek word anthropos, anthropos, which just means person, human, uh, plus logos. So it's sort of organized study of a person, right? This is where even we get our sort of contemporary and relatively recent field anthropology. A couple things I want to say here. Anthropos is humanity in a generic term. It's not gendered. There are separate uh, Greek words for man and woman. Uh, and it's also true in Hebrew that there's a generic word for human. Now, when we talk about anthropos, we're just talking about human being, a human person. This is really important because uh, I'm sorry to say that in the history of Christian theology, not every theologian has thought that women are made in the image of God, for example. Uh, I just like to throw it out there that I do think that women are made in the image of God. In case you're wondering, we'll talk more about that later. So this is just humanity in a generic sort of neutral sense. And what I want to, uh, the main point I want to drive home in our time together this week is that the Bible has a tremendously balanced anthropology. 
The key to biblical anthropology, I think, is that the biblical writers want us to understand what is our rightful place in creation. And it's not at the very top, nor is it at the very bottom. So to anticipate, we are not God. That much is clear. But we're also not chemical scum, as Hawking put it. Right. So the main question that we're going to try to answer together this week is this. This is from Psalm 8. What is man, Enosh, that sort of generic humanity? What is human that you should take notice of him? Of what importance is the human race that you would pay attention to them? So this is the question posed by Psalm 8. What is a human being that God even cares about us? Well, as I mentioned before, I think our culture is pretty confused about this question, what is a human being? Uh, And I think they would struggle to answer. And as a general rule, we tend to either overestimate ourselves or underestimate ourselves. Those are the two sort of critical uh, anthropological errors of our time. So as an example, uh, some of you might know the name Protagoras. He was a pre-Socratic philosopher in ancient Greece. And he very famously said that man is the measure of, of all things, man is the measure of all things. Uh, but is that true? Is it really the case that a human being is the final criterion of all reality? Well, we tend to live like it's true. Uh, we tend to exist in the world as if it exists only for our own benefit. Uh, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the world. We tend to put ourselves at the center of our own reality. Uh, And this is, in some ways, what the the biblical writers refer to as pride, to displace God as the center of reality and put ourselves there. Uh, Man is the measure of all things. Man, this view is still really popular, uh, despite overwhelming uh, evidence to the contrary, that we are intrinsically broken and sinful and even wicked creatures. We continue to believe that we are inherently good and inherently powerful. And especially in places like Silicon Valley, you still hear uh, hear people talking like there is no problem that human ingenuity can't solve. As we're going to see, that is not the way the Bible thinks about a human being. Okay. We do not have limitless potential. Uh, We are brilliant beautiful, majestic creatures, but we are sinful and we are limited. We are not the measure of all things. So on the one hand, we tend to overestimate ourselves. On the other hand, there's also been a tendency in our cultural Western tradition since the enlightenment to undervalue the human being. Uh, And here we might draw on the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Some of you might know that name. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a book called The Twilight of the Idols, in which he said that a human being is a piece of fate a piece of fate. He says, there's no purpose behind a human being. We simply are. uh, And we are meant to live sort of in a survival of the fittest kind of mode. And Nietzsche thought that we had been castrated and lobotomized by morals and morality and religion. And we need to throw all that off and just live like the animals that we are. He called this the will to power. So on the one hand, uh, are we the measure of all things like Protagoras says? Or are we just pieces of fate? Are we just animals like Nietzsche or maybe even the new atheists like Richard Dawkins might say? That we're just really complicated, highly evolved animals, but animals nonetheless. Is it true? What do the Christian scriptures teach? That's the question we want to answer today. So we're going to do it in two parts. We're going to be doing theological anthropology. And by that, we just mean a distinctly Christian account of what it means to be a human being. 
Because I think the Bible and the Christian tradition has a lot to tell us about the nature of our own existence. And so we're going to be doing this in two parts. We're going to be asking two questions. The what question, this is a question of human constitution. What kind of creatures are we? What, what are we made of? And then the second question, and I think the more important question is the who question. Who are we? And this is where we're going to be dealing with the doctrine of the imago dei, the doctrine of the image of God. Because the Christian scriptures teach that human beings are made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, I'm sorry to inform you that we're not really sure because the Bible doesn't actually tell us. Because there, there's lots of things that we can infer. So we're going to be dealing with the, the question of human constitution first. And then we're going to look at the question of the imago dei in the second part. Uh, the implications are really important. It makes all the difference in the world uh, that we discern uh, how to think Christianly about what a human being is, because it will impact the way that we engage with our neighbors, with our families, uh, with our society. Uh, it has critical implications for all kinds of questions. And I'll make a few comments about that uh, at the end of our time together. So let's start with the what question. What is a human being? I'm going to give you two very familiar passages here. Uh, these are from the creation account as we find it in Genesis chapter two. Uh, and we're going to meditate on these passages for just a couple minutes together to draw some very, in, uh, very important implications for the way that the Bible thinks about the constitution of a human being. So I'll read them and then we'll think about them together. So Genesis two, seven reads like this. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man and the word in Hebrew here is Adam uh, our English Bibles translate this as Adam, as if it's a proper name, but it's not the guy's name. He's not a, a person named Adam. The word in Hebrew is Adam, and it just means earth creature. We're going to see what, we're going to see why Adam is called earth creature, but it means dust creature, dust being. God formed man of dust from the ground, right? dust creature, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So that's Genesis two seven. Skip further down into the chapter for the creation of woman. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay. Uh, we may be familiar with these passages, but they're a little enigmatic. So I want to spend just a couple minutes together sort of drawing out some of the key themes here. And I want to talk about the means of humanity's createdness. I want to talk about the distinct way in which human beings are made in the Hebrew scriptures. And this will give us lots of insight into what it actually means to be a human person. Okay. The first two points are related and they're here on your study guide. Human beings are the product of God's special creative act, which is another way of saying that they're created by the intimate touch of God. This is really important. If you read the, the creation account in Genesis one, you will notice that there is a refrain uh, that is repeated in days one through five. Human beings are created on day six in the creation account at the very end. And in days one through five, what is the refrain? God said, let there be. And there was. And so for five days, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be on day sixth. Let us make. Do you notice the shift? So for five days, God says, let there be, which means that for the rest of the created order, it was created by God's spoken word, which implies a sort of distance between the created order and God, the creator. But for human beings, God says, let us make. 
right? Which is a very intimate image. I don't want you to miss it. In chapter two, you've got an image of God stooping down, uh, picking up the dust with his hands. Now, of course, this is metaphorical language. God, the father is spirit. As we talked about several weeks ago, he doesn't have physical hands, but the image is of God stooping down, taking dust, forming human beings with his own hands. It's a very intimate image. And in fact, uh, the word used for the creation of Eve says he made a woman. The word in Hebrew is bana, and it is a word from craftsmanship. It means to make something beautifully. It's a craftsmanship word. So the idea is that God, uh, unlike the rest of creation, God fashions human beings. He makes them beautiful and he makes them with his own hands. It's a very intimate image. We shouldn't miss it. There's a tremendous tenderness about the image of God forming them. And that helps us to understand a very beautiful passage in Psalm 139, where David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Right? Something intimate and tender about the creation of a human being. Human beings are created out of pre-existing material. And we can draw a very important implication from this. The idea is that we are made of stuff that existed before us. And it's interesting that science in the 19th century finally caught up to what the biblical authors already knew, is that we are made mostly of the same stuff that the earth is. Human beings are mostly carbon. We're lots of other stuff too. But the biblical writers are uh, explicit in pointing out that we are dust. And when we die, we return to dust. Now, why does this matter? Well, a couple things. Uh, It shows that we are dependent on the rest of creation for our own existence. We talked about this when we talked about God's aseity. This is the idea that God has life in and of himself. Human beings do not. We are dependent on all kinds of things for our life. And it implies, number two, that we are finite. Unlike God, who is infinite, who is totally unbounded, we are finite. We are bound creatures. Which means that we are not the measure of all things. And it means that we cannot solve every problem. And it, does, and it means that we are not free to be whatever we'd like no matter how many kids books you read. And I'm reading a lot these days. You are not free to do whatever you like. We like to think, especially in our culture, that we are limitless in our possibilities, but we are not. The great theologian, Karl Barth said that death is God's ultimate stop sign for human beings. You can go, you can reach for the stars, but at the end of the day, you're going to return to dust. This is all right there in the biblical narrative. We are finite creatures. At the same time, we are unique creatures and we are distinct from animals. Now, it is true that the animals are formed out of the dust of the ground, too. So uh, in the biblical account, there is on one level, we are formed in the same way that uh, animals are, except uh, we are formed by the touch of God. And we are the only creatures who are said to bear the image of God. We're going to talk about what that means uh, in the second part of our talk. But it is important to note that human beings are unique. They're distinct from animals. Uh, And so, for instance, you you might uh, run into sort of rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric that suggests that sort of we are animals and uh, animals are our brothers and sisters and we are organically connected to them. And on one level, that's true. But on another level, it actually reduces the dignity of a human person. Right. Right. 
Another German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, wrote a very famous essay called What is Man? And in the opening line of the essay, he says, a cow doesn't know that it's a cow. A cow is just a cow, right? Human beings ask questions about their own existence. So there's something distinct about being human uh, that's unlike uh, what it means to be an animal. And then uh, a related point is that human beings are made from the dust, but these accounts tell us that human beings are more than dust. They are infused with God's own spirit. So there is something about a human being uh, that is spiritual. We have a spiritual component, right? Some of you may remember the movie that came out long ago. Do uh, all dogs go to heaven? I don't know. I think my dog is not going there uh, personally. Uh, And uh, dogs don't sit around and think about their spiritual condition, but human beings can. We can ask questions about ourselves. The theologian Reinhold Niebuhr called this self-transcendence. And what he meant is we can somehow uh, kind of go beyond uh, our own finite experience and think about the nature of our existence. We can ask big questions about our life. What does it mean? Why am I here? Why am I afraid of death? These are questions that only human beings can ask because we have a spiritual component. We are not just animals. That's how the biblical authors see it at any rate. And so uh, the question remains, what are we made of? What kind of creature are we? Right? This spirit, uh, this creature that is dust and spirit together. Well, uh, this is the question of human constitution. Uh, What are we made of? What are our component parts? Uh, There are three classical views um, one has been dominant in the history of Christian theology. And I think that's for good reason. It's probably the best model, but I'll introduce you to the three classical views. One is a view called monism. And this is the idea that human beings are an indissoluble unity, right? So there actually is no separation between the spiritual and physical component. Human beings are simply just one thing. They're, they're a unity. Uh, and some important theologians have held to this view and there are some merits to it. In fact, um, you know, we've been talking about how you at Fathom have been going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, it does help us to make sense of a passage like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says, you know, when you have sex with someone, you can't just do that with your body and then leave your spirit somewhere else, right? Uh, we're not sort of dissectable in that way. Everything you do with your body is in some sense a spiritual act. I think Paul would say that. Where this view runs into problems, though, is it seems to suggest that these two components are separable, at least in the sense that when we die, the essence of who we are, right, our spirit goes to be with the Lord while we await the final resurrection where we are reunited with our bodies. We're going to talk about that when we talk about eschatology at the end, last things. But the Bible sees uh, a final resurrection where we are all sort of re-embodied to face judgment and then uh, and so on. So the idea is that uh, it doesn't seem in terms of what the Bible teaches about eschatology, that monism holds up, although it's not totally incoherent. Uh, A second view is a view called trichotomism. And this is the view that human beings have a body. They have a soul, which is like a, like the the source of their intellect and their emotions. And then a spirit, uh, which is sort of the the dimension of a human being that communes with God. Uh, That view it's fine, I guess, as far as it goes, but most scholars seem to think that it's based on a pretty over-literal reading of, uh, for instance, in First Thessalonians 4, I believe, that Paul says, may God sanctify you completely, keeping your body and your soul and your spirit blameless for the day of the Lord. Uh, it's more likely that Paul is employing a literary technique called parallelism here, where spirit and soul are not actually different things. They're just two ways of saying the same thing. 
The most common view, and I think the best one for my money, is a view called dichotomism. And this is the view that human beings have a spiritual component and they have a physical component. And actually the, the, the percentage or the, the sort of ratio of how they relate is not really important. All that's important is to say that we are bodily creatures with a spiritual component, right? Uh, sometimes you'll say that we, uh, you'll hear people say that we are embodied souls. Carl Bart says, actually, it would be better to think of ourselves as ensouled bodies. Uh, and all that is to say, uh, what is unique about human being compared to other kinds of animal life is that we've got this spiritual component, which has this awareness of God, or at least an awareness of transcendence, an awareness that we are somehow meant for communion with this, this kind of transcendence. Um, and usually a sort of awareness that we don't measure up to that transcendence, the sort of a sense of guilt or shame that's unique to a human being. All that is to say the Bible teaches that a human being is both body and spirit. And it's not that interested in sort of nailing down the mechanics of that relationship. All that is to say, there is something spiritual about what it means to be a human being in the world, which leads us to sort of what is distinctly human And that is the doctrine of the image of God. Uh, This doctrine is tricky. Uh, It's hotly contested. It's also very popular right now. It's having a comeback in theology because I think our culture is starting to realize that we need to find ways to talk about the value of a human being. Because if Nietzsche is right and we're just pieces of faith, then human beings don't matter. Human life is cheap. And in fact, there's lots of places in our world right now where human life is very cheap. So what does it mean? to talk about human beings being made in the image of God. Well, first, let me introduce some of the biblical vocabulary in Hebrew and in Greek. In Hebrew, you get a couple words, selim, which means image, and demut, which means likeness. Uh, In in Genesis chapter 127, uh, God says, let us make humankind in our own image and likeness. It uses both terms. Uh, They're probably equivalent terms. Uh, Some early Christian authors thought that they meant different things and made a big deal out of that. But most scholars would say that actually that's another example of parallelism. To say that we're made in God's image and likeness is really saying the same thing. The word here is important. It means a physical image of something, actually. And what's significant is it's the same word in Hebrew that the biblical writers use for the word idol. Idol. So like if you go into a pagan temple and there's a statue there, the word would be selim, right? Idol. And so it's as if the Bible is saying human beings are meant to be little idols of God, right? Uh, So I want you to hang on to that thought. In Greek, the word is icon, uh, where we get the English word icon, right? It means image. And homoiousis, uh, oh, sorry, homoiosis, right? Tricky word there. That means likeness. Uh, The word icon is important because it means a physical image. Uh, And it means an image that somehow participates in the reality that it represents. So the idea here is that human beings are somehow reflective of God because in some ways we have a share of God's life uh, by virtue of how we're created. Uh, And we'll take a look at how that plays out. Uh, Typically, you'll see these terms Latinized into the Imago Dei, the image of God. And we just sort of use Imago Dei as a shorthand for talking about this entire issue. So let's talk a little bit about a scriptural touch points, how this language is used in the Bible. So in Genesis one, I've already mentioned, God said, let us make humankind in our image, sell them, and in our likeness, demut. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Now here's the catch. That's all it says in Genesis one. 
It says that we're made in the image of God, but it does not tell us what that actually means. That's the puzzle. Genesis 5. This is the record of the family line of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness, demut, of God. This is significant uh, because it sort of suggests that there's a family resemblance. It's used in the context of a family line. Uh, Adam's son bears his own likeness, just like Adam bears the likeness of God. Very significantly in Genesis 9, whoever sheds human blood by other humans must his blood be shed. For in God's image, Selim, God created or has made humankind. A couple things I want you to notice here. This is in Genesis 9, which means it's after the fall, which suggests that even after sin entered the world, human beings remain image bearers. You might hear some Christian theologians talk about the image being lost at the fall. And uh, I think a defensible case can be made for that. But I do think the biblical writers think about human beings still being image bearers even after the fall, which suggests to us that the image of God is not something that we possess. It is something that we are. There's something indelible about it. And not only that, Genesis 9 also shows us that the image of God means that there is something really sacred about a human being. Genesis 9 says that if someone takes a human life, they must forfeit their own life because they have taken the life of someone who is made in the image of God. So there's this gravity and sanctity that is attached to a human life because they bear the image of God. But here again, it doesn't tell us what that means. In the New Testament, you get less explicit talk about the image of God, but it is still there. Uh, Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. Since you've put off the old man, Anthropos, you've, been, you've put off the old human with its practices, and you've been clothed with the new man that is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image, the icon of the one who created it. Couple uh, important points here. The Bible never refers to human beings as the image of God. It always clarifies that we are made in the image of God. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only one who is ever called the image of God. So some theologians have said that the, the doctrine of the image of God needs to be understood Christologically, right? That we can only become truly human when we are conformed to the image of Christ. And that's what Paul is sort of saying here in Colossians 3. He says it also in Romans 8, that our destiny is to be conformed to the image of the one who is the image of God. Uh, But what's interesting is Paul uses this doctrine as a basis for our ethical conduct in the church. He says, don't lie to one another. Well, why? Because you're image bearers, right? You owe the truth to one another. It's a similar theme in James chapter three, but with the tongue, he says, we bless the Lord and father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's image. That's supposed to be a devastating line because James says, listen, when you talk badly about someone, when you slander someone, you curse them, you are cursing God's handiwork, right? You are slandering someone who bears God's image. I wonder if we might think about that next time we're tempted to curse or slander someone, that's an image bearer, right? That person is entitled to dignity. Yeah. So here you can see the doctrine of the, the image of God undergirding sort of Christian ethics, how we're supposed to behave in the world. This doctrine has a lot to do with that, but here's the problem. Uh, and it's summarized here by Catherine Tanner, uh, who's a contemporary theologian. And she puts it like this. She says, humans have some special standing as the focus of God's concern. God may covenant with all the earth, 
and its inhabitants. But God makes a special covenant with a particular people, and despite their continual failings, remains faithful to, to them with a steadfast love. So she's making the point that the Bible seems to teach that human beings are the special object of God's affection, uh, in distinction from the rest of creation. The creation of human beings in God's image, she says, may sum up this distinction. The biblical narrative remains silent, however, about any qualities of human nature that might account for their special standing. So if we can translate that out of uh, theologian speak into regular people speak, what Tanner is saying here is the Bible seems to tell us there's something really special about humans, but it doesn't tell us what that is. Or if I could put it another way, it says that human beings are important as image bearers, but it doesn't say what the content of the image of God is. We are left to infer that from the biblical narrative. And so in the history of doctrine, human beings uh, have been thought of as image bearers according to three or four models. Uh, Some have been dominant in specific times. All of them have shortcomings. And I think actually we need all of them to make sense of what it means to bear the image of God. Uh, Because I think uh, the image of God is the key to understanding that balanced biblical anthropology. We are not God, but we are in his likeness. So we are not the measure of all things, but neither are we chemical scum. We are unique creatures gifted with the divine image, which means that we can somehow reflect God's glory and his character. And yet we remain distinct from God. We are not God. And we're not gods. So what are the classical views that have been used to describe the image of God? The most uh, influential hands down in the history of Christian doctrine is what I've called the substantival account, or sometimes uh, this is called the substantive account. And this is the view basically that human beings possess certain capacities and qualities that distinguish them from other animals and therefore constitute the image of God. All of the early Christian theologians more or less held to this view. Luther and Calvin and the Reformation held to this view. And this is the view uh, that say human beings have the capacity for rational thought. Uh, Augustine said, for instance, the fact that we walk upright is a reflection that we are made in the image of God because the human mind is the most perfect reflection of the image of God. And the human mind, the fact that we stand upright means that our minds are straining to meet with God. Sort of, sort of an interesting image, but it captures the idea that the, the fact that we have rational capabilities, that's the image of God, uh, or that we speak uh, in complex language systems. We know that animals communicate and that they do have language, right? We know that certain primates can communicate. Uh, apparently dolphins can communicate. Uh, if Free Willy, which was an important movie in my childhood, is to be trusted, whales can communicate with each other. Uh but they don't communicate with complex language systems the way that humans do. And they don't build cultures or texts the way that humans do. Uh, sometimes the capacity for abstract reasoning uh, is, is uh, identified with the image of God. So for instance, animals can reason. I can watch my dog kind of think through decisions like uh, should she jump up on the counter to eat food that we left there? She knows she'll get in trouble, but she really wants the food. So she does deliberate, but she doesn't make uh, complex, multi-layered decisions in the same way that human beings do. So all that is to say, most theologians in the history of the church have seen the image of God as being identical with some sort of capacity that human beings have. Now, this view has come under critical scrutiny in recent years, and there's been some good questions raised about it. Uh, Number one... 
What about people who don't have those capacities? So what about children, right? I've got a 14-month-old daughter. She can kind of communicate, but not really. She doesn't use complex language systems. Is she not an image bearer? Or what about the profoundly disabled? Or what about the elderly, right, who may be struggling with uh, Alzheimer's disease or dementia? Uh, Are they no longer image bearers? And that may sound abstract, but it's not, right? I wrote my PhD dissertation on pro-Nazi theologians in the 1920s and the 1930s. And there were theologians who were arguing that people who are no longer productive are no longer image bearers so that we can terminate their lives through euthanasia and not have to think twice about it. That was a theological view that was actually circulated in our world less than a hundred years ago, right? This matters, right? So the substantive view, while there is some merit, I think also has that weakness. So it needs to be supplemented. Another account of the image of God has been the so-called relational account. This became popular in the 20th century. Uh, And this is the idea that what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means to be able to to exist in relationship with each other uh, and in relationship with God. We are the kind of creatures who can be receptive to God's self-disclosure and can turn around and be in relationship with God. Uh, A 20th century theologian by the name of Emil Bruner made this point. He said he defined the image of God. He said as the point of contact between humanity and God, the image of God is that capacity that allows us to relate to God and relate to one another. Uh, Bruner's contemporary Carl Barth, who I already mentioned a couple times went even further. And he said, the image of God is cannot be realized by a, a man alone or by a woman alone, but only in communion. Right. Uh, the, the image of God is, comes together, Bart says in Adam and Eve together. Okay. That's interesting. And there is something to this idea that to be a human being is to be able to exist in a sort of profound, intimate relationship with each other and with God. And of course we know that animals have relationships, of course, but we only humans have what Martin Buber, a 20th century Jewish philosopher called the I thou relationship where we can see another person as they truly are they can see us as we truly are and we can relate in a sort of vulnerable intimacy. That's fine, but there's some weaknesses here too. What about someone who's not in relationship? What about someone who's isolated because of illness or disease or uh, through frailty or through uh, sinful decisions they've made? They've broken their relationships. Are they no longer image bearers? Or what if Bart is right? Then is it really the case that you can only realize the image of God when you are in a, a, a marriage relationship, you can see how this account of the image of God has resulted in some really problematic theologies of singleness in our church. And the idea that you can really only live a human life if you are married, the Bible does not teach that. And in fact, when Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, uh, in, inhabited a human life, he inhabited a single unmarried human life which shows us that a human life, and in fact, the most human life can be lived in singleness, right? So that's one weakness of this account, right? Uh, the Bible teaches that you can live a full, uh, full human life in relationship with God and others without being married, right? So Bart, I think is wrong on that account, even though there are some merits to this. Another account that's very, very popular is the vocational account. And this is the idea that human beings are image bearers, not really by virtue of capacities that they have, 
the ability to reason or to build cultures, say. Uh, and it's not really in their ability to relate, although that's part of it. It is in a role that they fulfill in creation, right? Uh, the biblical creation account in Genesis 1 says that human beings are created in God's image, and then that he turns over dominion over creation to them. So to be image bearers is to be appointed by God uh, in a relationship of stewardship over creation. Uh, a seventh century theologian named Maximus the Confessor, who that's one of the most awesome theologian names there's ever been, Maximus the Confessor. Maximus said a human being is a mediator and a microcosm of creation. Because we are spirit and flesh, we have all the elements of creation together, and we're supposed to be little mediators between creation and God. And the idea is that we're supposed to have a priestly function, that we are supposed to sum up the praise of creation, the inarticulate praise of creation, and then offer it to God as priests. And the New Testament picks up on this language too, where Peter says that we're meant to be in a royal priesthood. We, we turn the praises of creation to God. There's a lot to this, this idea that we express, uh, we exercise dominion over creation, not understood as sort of exploitative dominion, but uh, a responsibility to creation stewardship. So that's the vocational account. The, the image of God is not something that we have. It is something that we do. I could put it that way. It's a role that we fulfill. Now, I think there's truth to all of these, and they all have weaknesses, which is why, for my money, I think we need a holistic account. Uh, this has become popular in recent years where theologians have said, what if we were to take all of these accounts into, uh, in, together so that they can supplement each other's weaknesses uh, and give us a more well-rounded picture? Because the truth is, the Bible just doesn't tell us um, what it means to be an image bearer. It gives us hints, it gives us suggestions, and all of these accounts are biblical, but all of them are incomplete together. Uh, and we need all of them, I think, because our culture has been informed by uh, only one of them, and that's the substant, uh, substantival account. And we can see this most fully in the way that uh, Western art has developed. On your handout, you've got two pieces of art by Michelangelo, the Renaissance artist Michelangelo. One is the creation of Adam. Uh, which you'll recognize, actually, uh, probably if you've ever been uh, to the Vatican and you went to the Sistine Chapel, that's where this appears. Uh, I went to the Sistine Chapel a few years ago and I expected a really religious experience, but mostly it's just terrible. You're packed in there. There's like a million people. The panels are really small and they're way up there in the ceiling uh, and they're always yelling at you. They've got these guards who are yelling at you to be quiet in the chapel, which is ironic because they're the ones yelling, whatever. It's sort of a terrible experience, but if you've been there, Maybe you saw the creation of Adam and the creation of Adam is a perfect artistic uh, representation of the substantival view, right? You'll notice that Adam is almost exactly the same size as God, if not actually a little bit bigger. He's a mirror image of God. Do you see this? The way that the painting works uh, and God, the father is encased in what is literally a brain. Do you notice how the, the ribbon makes a brain. So this suggests that God is defined above all by rationality. So the image of God is the gift of rationality to Adam, which is represented actually in his huge head. Uh, Renaissance artists often depicted human beings have, as having enormous heads to suggest that they are defined above all by their rational abilities. Um, I'll give you the second image. This is uh, Michelangelo's sculpture of David, which is in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome in the Vatican. And you'll notice here some of the same themes, right? Uh, 
<laughs> Adam, Adam has, uh, sorry, uh, David has an enormous head and he has enormous hands. Have you noticed that? And that this is to emphasize that he's got tremendous capabilities as a builder. A human being is a creator, a builder of cultures and civilizations. And uh, you'll also notice, uh, and I'm the only one in the room, so I'm going to have to point it out. Uh, David's genitalia is really small, right? This is by design too, because what uh, Michelangelo is trying to communicate is that to be a human being is to be ruled by rationality, cool reason, and not by your passions. So his genitalia is actually really small to emphasize that the ideal human won't succumb to passions. That's not an important part of being a human being. In fact, that's a part that's meant to be transcended. Now, there's a couple of ironies here. Number one, if you know anything about the story of David, uh, you'll know that he actually often made uh, decisions uh, based out of his sexual desires and not by cool reason. And number two, what this misses, I think, and what we need to supplement is that uh, our sexuality is also an important part of being an, Im uh, an image bearer, right? We are meant to be sexual creatures. Uh, it's not the most important thing about us and it's not the only thing about us, but it does matter, right? So all that is to say, if we only take this substantival account, we end up with Adam or David here, huge heads, huge hands, uh, but missing out on some of these other elements like relationality and dominion. Uh, so where do we end up? Well, part of the difficulty as we've been sketching here is that the Bible simply does not tell us what it means to bear the image of God. It alludes to it. It hints at it. And we can, we need to do the hard work of trying to figure out what it means, but whatever else it means, the image of God means uh, that human beings are the object of God's special concern and love. And so to drive home that point, I want to leave you with a quote from Rowan Williams, who is uh, formerly the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's an Anglican theologian. And I want you to listen to this, and I just want you to receive it. Right? The reverence I owe, Williams writes, to every human person is connected with the reverence I owe to God who brings them into being and keeps them in being. I stand before holy ground when I encounter another person, not because they are born with a set of legal rights, which can be demanded and enforced, but because there is a dimension of their life that I shall never fully see. The dimension where they come forth from the purposes of God into the world with a unique set of capabilities and possibilities. So this is important. He's trying to steer us away from that purely sub, uh, substantival account. A human being, he says, is entitled to your respect, not because of things that they can do, not because of capacities that they have, not because they're really smart, not because they're really beautiful, but because they are called into existence by God. They are held in existence by God. And there is a dimension of their life that they share with God that you will never see. He says, the Christian gospel declares that there is nothing more godlike and nothing more precious than a single human person. Now, evangelicals have typically been very good about this, about crusading for life, pro-life. But unfortunately, we have tended to focus on a certain kind of life, which is unborn life. And un unequivocally, I am with you on that. That life matters. But if the doctrine of the image of God is true, it means that every kind of life matters. So Christian people need to be people of life. We need to have dignity for 
every kind of life because a human, a single human person is the object of God's concern. They are precious to him and they ought to be precious to us. So I want you to think this week as you go out into the world, really think about the fact that every single human being that you encounter was crafted by God in his image. The barista who makes your coffee, the clerk who checks you out at the grocery store, the barber who cuts your hair, the annoying coworker that you share a cubicle with when we used to share cubicles. That's an image bearer. Every single human being is the object of God's special concern. So whatever else the doctrine of the Imago Dei is, and there's a lot more to say, we only scratched the surface tonight, but whatever else it means, it means that every human being is entitled to dignity and respect because every single human being is a human being, as Paul puts it, for whom Christ died. And we're going to talk about why it was necessary for Christ to die because we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin, which is the shadow side of theological anthropology. That's where we'll pick up the plot next week. And I'll look forward to seeing you then.